Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroh, trusted authority in executive and transactional liability and president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Now a proud member of the Liberty Company Insurance Broker Network. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Richard Parker, founder of Roy Street Advisors. Based in Boca Raton, Florida, Roy Street Advisors provides investment banking and sell-side advisory services to owners and founders in the lower middle market. And with a lot of flurry and things going on now with owners and founders, uh, Richard, this is an ideal time. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Now, before we get into Roy Street Advisors and what's happening in, in the uh, sell side community, let's start with you. How did you get to this point in your career? I often ask that same question to myself. Um, so I, I grew up in Canada, in Montreal, Canada, and uh, I've been living in South Florida for 27 years. During my time there, the last probably five, six years that I was in Canada, I was in my own business. I went into my own business because I uh, I was brilliant enough to invest uh, and, and lose $60,000 in the stock market. My gross annual income at that point was 72. When I say lost, I mean, I owed the money. And I realized that if I don't, if there's no way I'm going to be able to pay this back, keep working at a job, even though I was making good money Going back 25, 28 years at that point, all longer than that, um, actually 30 plus years. So he said, the only way, way I'm going to be able to pay this back is if I've got to go into my own business. And I ultimately did. I went into um, the agency manufacturer's agent business in 1990 um, in the uh, consumer products, toys, infant, infant products. Mm. And along the way, uh, in the subsequent few years after that, I, I acquired a, a couple of smaller businesses to tack on to what I was doing. A couple of them that were really unrelated, but I was really enjoying that process of acquiring a business. And, and thankfully, I was able to recover from my uh, stock market uh, misdeeds. Um, and I guess I got a bit of a reputation for being able to buy some of these business amongst peers and started doing some consulting free, um, but helping out friends and family and just others who came across my way just with the uh, acquisition process because I'd completed about five or six of them. In nineteen, in about nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, I was looking at an acquisition in South Florida, which for me was large. It was a little over a million dollars. I mean, it's, it's small by some of today's standards. Some of the deals that I work on, but for me, that was a that was a real big um, potential investment. Mm -hmm. And I started. Um, I had a contract in place, an agreement in place, and was involved in the due diligence. I had an accountant um, helping me, and I was digging into the due diligence myself. Pretty well versed in it, so mm -hmm. I was doing it in tandem with the accountant. Yeah. And what I uncovered was unbelievable. If you talk about the 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 typical cooking the book syndrome, I mean, mm -hmm. this was it. This was like the poster child. Oh, and yeah. it was a disaster, but it, it it could have been a disaster. But I was able to uncover it before um, mm -hmm. and, and was able to um, rescind the contract. And I walked out of there and I remember walking it out, out of the um, the office of the business that I was looking at. And I was standing in the parking lot and I remember thinking to myself, you know, the average person who didn't have the benefit of years of experience looking at businesses or top tier accountants, which you typically wouldn't have at that level yeah. of business. Yeah. But the average person would have bought that business and it would have turned out to be an absolute nightmare. Uh -huh. And so, you know, turning a dream into a nightmare. And so uh, that really got me thinking along the lines of like, what's available for 
Main Street and a little bit above biz, prospective business buyers who people want to acquire a business, but they don't have any expertise. And, you know, who's there to help them and, and everything along those lines. I was really intrigued with it. And this is really the infancy of the Internet, about 2001. And the yeah. broker who was involved in the deal was a, was a very good guy. I mean, he was misled as well. And so I started doing a lot of research online and in bookstores. Well, yeah, <laughs> the glory days when we had bookstores. Yeah. Um, and really found that there was nothing that would help individual small business buyers. And I became very intrigued with that. And I just, there was a lot of courses at that point on internet marketing. Okay. I remember there was one course, it was a monster course written by, by Corey Rudell, who was, was killed, unfortunately, a young man. But I thought his course was great related to internet marketing. But I said, well, maybe I could apply this to business buying. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down and I had looked at hundreds of deals over the years at that point. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and I, and I took copious of all these years, great files. I kill, still kept all my files and every scenario that came up, I wrote down what I did in that scenario, okay. what worked yep. and what didn't work. And so I had this really good manual, a lot of you know notes, not necessarily scattered, but it was, was like this, um, but really what if scenarios. And I decided to write a course and I ended up writing a 548 page course, a wow. real take people by the hand. It was called how to buy a good business at a great price. Mm-hmm. And would really take people by the hand through the whole process. If this happened, do this, going through, you know, uh, what type of business you should buy, dealing with business brokers, how to value a business and with spreadsheets and worksheets and contracts and what to do, due diligence and questions to ask the sellers and negotiating and um, closing the transaction, financing the deal. And it turned out to be like a blockbuster. I was sold it in about 80 something countries and have written seven seven or eight versions of it. And that led me to actually get into brokerage because what was happening was most of the buyer uh, people who were acquiring my course, I kept, I kept getting inundated with emails and telling me that people are tearing their hair out dealing with business brokers. And again, this is more more mainstream. Yeah. And so I went to meet with a uh, the owner of a business broker down in Florida, Transworld, who was a very large business broker, yeah. and um, and met their owner Andy Cagnetta. And and I was on the impression, you know, my background, I used to sell consumer products for like a dollar a piece, yeah. and I used to make a really good living. You know, the, the low six figure volume. In- yeah, yeah, right. Make it up in volume. And so I had thought, and I started asking him questions. How much does the average business sell for? And it was a few hundred thousand. And what is the average commission? It was like 10% for business broker. And in my mind, okay, so the top guys have to be making a million bucks a year. Yeah. And the guys that are really pathetic are probably making 300 grand. That that's that's my wow. mindset going in, yeah. right? That's what I'm thinking. And I asked him, like, how much is the average business broker making? He says, 60 grand. And I said, okay, I'm going into this business. Oh, wow. And that was that was the genesis for me going into the business because I said, you know, if you're t- selling a three hundred thousand dollar product on Main Street businesses yeah. and getting ten percent, you got to be able to sell a lot. You sell yeah. two a year. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. So I went into that, um, and in, and it, and it, this was Main Street brokerage very early on. This a two two plus decades ago, but what I learned was mind boggling. Right. The amount of businesses that don't sell, the amount of businesses, how long they stay on the market, Mm -hmm. the number of deals, for example, that fall apart after a deal has been placed in due diligence is like 50 percent of the deals fall apart because of poor books and records. So and a lot of brokers, there's a lot of good brokers, but there's an infinite amount of bad brokers at the lower Mm -hmm. end. And so it got me really, really intrigued. Every, and I realized that everything that they're doing, the numbers were so crazy. I've got it. Whatever they're doing, I'm doing the opposite. Okay. 
And I slowly moved up into larger deals because I've recognized very quickly I was only selling my time and it takes just as much time to sell a larger deal as a smaller one. Mm -hmm. And you're dealing with very unsophisticated people. No disrespect intended to those individuals. And the other piece of the equation was there was a couple of very early transactions where I was on the buyer side of the deal. The business was was horrific as we dug in. And I, I couldn't bear the thought of ever getting a commission knowing that someone was going to put their life savings into this. And it was, for lack of better terms, a shit business. Excuse my French. And so I said, I I got a room. I won't sleep at night. I mean, knowing that though I was Mm -hmm. part of a deal that that someone pulled the trigger and put their life savings into something like that. So I ended up going into, you know, started doing brokerage and and, uh, transaction work on larger deals, you know, probably about a million dollars to be done more outside of Main Street. And Mm -hmm. that through to about 2008. And um, then the market um, was just collapsed, yes. um, and especially in that in, in, in that area, which deals just couldn't get financed. They ended up subsequent to that, bought a couple of businesses, built those up, invested my time, spent time in them, built them up, sold them, added a lot of technology and sold them. Did quite well. Um, one of them less than the other, but 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 did you know fairly fairly well. Um, and then in 2017. I actually left the the brokerage world and I I, I went to the investment side of the business mm-hmm. uh, funded by a very prominent family office. I was partners with the uh, uh, founder's son, who is a, a, a dear friend of mine. And um, we ran that business for, for four years. It was, it was some very, I mean, it was, it was wonderful experience. And some of the things were incredibly positive simply because we, you know, we didn't need funding, right? We had, yeah. right. So that was great. That's half, um, that's half the battle. Maybe 80%. Yeah. And um, we did that for, uh, for about three and a half, four years. And then unfortunately, my my uh, dear partner and cherished friend was killed in a car accident. Oh, okay. um, and so we wound down the business, kept the investment, we've parked those. Um, the family and I are, are, are very, we're very, very close. Um, and um, we took care of that piece. And and subsequent to that, I was really, uh, you know, I was in a, uh, an awful state mentally, um, cause this was, you know, he and I were uh, close like brothers. And so it took a number of months off and decided what was it, what, what I really wanted to do. And I wasn't really sure. I just, cause I, I, I couldn't even have the mindset to work. And I ultimately decided to get back into the MA world. I always enjoyed it. I had great deal flow way back. When I say way back, it was only a few years prior. Yeah. Um, knew that it would take a much, uh, uh, a lot longer prior to that. I had hung my license with, um, with a brokerage down in South Florida, but I decided to open up my own firm. And that in a very long winded way is how I got here. I mean, first of all, everything you've come up with, you've 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 walked a mile in those shoes on both sides of the table. And you have also, I think you personify the fact that sometimes the best deals are the ones that don't happen. And so I I think that that's fabulous. Now, how did let's talk about Roy Street real quick as we we come because you you segue into this very nicely. So we got Roy Street. First of all, I mean, you, you didn't name it. Um, you know, Parker Capital or anything like that. So, I mean, where do we come up with a name? And let's talk about now what the practices that you are doing specifically for the lower middle market. And as we do this also, why don't you define, because it is relative with a lot of people, define what you think of as the lower middle market. Perfect. So Roy Street is the street in Montreal where my grandfather had his restaurants. Hmm. 
And my grandfather was a beauty. He escaped the Nazis back in the early 1900s. Okay. Um, he, you know, was like uh, we used to tell him, and uh, you know, he was the toughest old Polak you could ever imagine. And I, wow. and I could say that without getting in trouble because I'm yeah. part Polish. Yeah, there um, you go. Five foot six, 175 pounds, and would stand toe to toe and fight everyone. And and was a street fighter. I mean, yes. so and 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 the story of how he got over to North America was incredible. And he was a real hero to me. And he he lived with us, uh, my family, the last few years of, of his life. And he was a just a, a, a real character. They used to call him the mayor of Roy Street. He used oh, to, okay. And so named it in his honor. Um, so that was a big part. And the other part, I would never use my own name, because I remember, as I alluded to earlier, Andy Cagnetta, Transworld, and bring him up again, very, a, a, a long time ago, he we, he was talking to me about, you know, we were talking about businesses, whatever, and he's talking about how many um, small business owners make the mistake of naming their business after them, because yeah. when they go to leave and go to sell it, there's so much goodwill attached to that name that it's, it, it, it probably hurts the deal. So I had yeah. that in mind, but I really wanted to, you know, to honor my grandfather. So that's okay. how the name Roy Street came about. Um, as far as the question, I believe the second question related to the lower market um, and, 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 or, and why I focus on that. First of all, it's if we define it, there's no there's no definition of it, right? I mean, if you you could speak to, I'm sure if you have the next twenty people on on your uh, on your wonderful podcast and you ask them to define lower middle market, you'll have uh, you have ten different answers. Right? It's in the eye of the beholder. Yes, it's in the eye of the beholder. So to me, I look at it this way. So for me, the lower market are ones that are too big to be small and too small to be big, and Perfect. I've always defined them as. For me, anyways, a million to 10 million of EBITDA, EBITDA but 10 is a real stretch because yep. once you start getting up there, it, that's a an investment bank rule. So for me, it's really the sweet spot is, is one to $5 million of EBITDA okay. and like a transaction value, probably like 25 million would be, you know, on, on the high side, you gotcha. know, like it might mm -hmm. creep up a little bit, especially with some, you know, some of the multiples have gone a little bananas recently, but mm -hmm. or lately. But um, that that to me is how I define it for me, anyways. Okay. You know, and I, I I truly believe, and I think the third question you asked was related to why I'm why I'm there, yeah. which is it's very underserved, right? I mean, the expression that I used earlier, "too big to be small and too small to be big." Yeah. Um, you know, it 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 goes above. It's beyond what typical business brokers will do. It's not attractive to investment bankers. I think. For me, anyways, those are the areas where there's the biggest opportunity for improvement. I'm dealing with a more sophisticated buyer, a more sophisticated seller. They're the hardest deals to finance, right? Mm. Because they're not PE size and they're yeah. very often fall outside SBA deal size. Yeah. So for me, I like that because I don't have much competition. Yeah. Right. They're wow. real hard deals to get to the finish line. That to me is the joy in all of this. You know, for other people, they find that that's their heartburn. For me, that's the joy. And so, again, you know, the the opportunities to improve those businesses before even take them to market and could really move the needle on valuation for all those reasons that that's why I like to play in that space. And I'm very rigid. I, I don't go lower and I don't go higher. Yeah, well, I, I think that's that's ideal for why we're doing this and why I really wanted to have you on the show and talk about Roy Street Advisors for owners and founders out there. And even PE firms that are looking for tuck-ins and add-ons and so forth is that, you know what, you've got these owners and founders and there are a couple of things happening now. First, they want to grow and they've got to that inflection point. They just don't know how to take that next step. And so they need something else. And then there's the other factor where we have a lot of owners and founders that don't have, you know, they now want an exit. 
and they don't have family or staff that want to take over the business. And so they've got to go out. And if they're left to their own devices, they're either going to find it, you know, default to an institution that's not going to serve them very well or strategic. And, you know, strategic may or may not have their interests at heart. And so, you know, left left to that, they don't have it. That's why we want to make sure that people know more about organizations like yours with Roy Street, where you're, you, you've identified a couple great little silos where there are gaps in services for others with financing and everything. So I think that that's fantastic. One of the things that I want to ask about, you know, what you're delivering to the lower middle market in a little bit more detail, but one of the very interesting things is, you mentioned something that of the companies that go listed, was it 25% or 50% never get sold, even if they just go out there and the owners just ultimately just decide to close their doors. And, uh, and those right. that do get lucky enough to get sold, they get sold for far lower than they, they expected. Talk about that a little bit. You would, you would refer to it just a moment ago. The number is actually worse. It's mm-hmm. in the lower market, Main Street, businesses, 75% of the businesses that you see listed publicly for sale don't get sold. It's nuts. Now, on the other hand, it also, you know, it's like, it's a catch 22. You look at that and say, is that why lower market um, intermediaries carry a ton of listings in order to mitigate the number that don't sell? Or is it because they carry so many listings, so many of them don't sell? Right. Like, I don't know what that answer is. There probably there's probably an answer in both of those scenarios. But the outcome or the results speak for themselves, which is the majority do not sell. Now, you think about how much time is invested and it's very unfortunate for the sellers, you know, when that happens or the buyers that are looking and wasting their time. Um, and, And, you know, to me, the single biggest reason is they either shouldn't be on the market for sale or they're they've come to the market too quickly. And what I mean by that is there's just some businesses that just aren't going to sell. There's just not enough of a buyer pool. There's too many assets that reside between the seller's ears. They mm-hmm. built their business. You know, a, a, a business owner has built a business without planning processes, procedures, no second tier um, management in place. And the time comes to settle a business, it's just not attractive. It's just not going to transition well to enough. Uh, you know, it's not going to transition well. or There's enough, not enough of a buyer pool, but it really becomes, you know, when I say that the second part is this too quick to market, because there is this listing mentality in my world, right? And intermediate, get the listing, right? I mean, which yeah. is re- which is a terrible way to do it because you should, you know, a, a, an intermediary should interview, put the seller through the same amount of underwriting that a seller puts a potential uh, intermediary that they're going to hire through in order to yeah. hire them. And so too quick to list. Um, I think that's a problem. I think there's the the expectations that sellers have or business owners have, maybe on their own or maybe misled, whatever the combination is, the expectations are way out of line, you know, and especially start reading, you know, there's so much access to information, you start reading, you know, companies trading at 25 times or or 200 times expected yeah. earnings, or, and they're, or they're selling at 10 times earnings. You understand, that doesn't translate down yeah. to your privately held business, but that's yeah. what's been imprinted on their mental hard drive. Yes. So the expectations are a big part of it. The lack of preparation is definitely a big part of it, of taking it to market at the right time. Because if you do it in a good way, you're going to get more money for it, right? Not only is it has a better chance for it to sell, but you should be able to get more money for it. And so, you know, and there's also this idea that your first offer is your best offer. In other words, people you put a business onto market. As the process goes, sellers get frustrated or get more motivated. An offer comes in, and then everyone thinks that your first offer is the best offer. 
Mm. which is not the case. I mean, there's yeah. people in my world will tell you that over and over again. I don't subscribe to that. To me, your best offer is your best offer. That's yes. the best offer, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the, for all those reasons, and again, you know, the expectations, the preparation, not being ready for market, you shouldn't even go to market, you know, to me are the reasons why those stats are so dismal. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it as simple as, I mean, some of the fixes is just documenting an operational manual. You know, and and you know, get the stuff out of here and get it documented in a way that okay, anybody can come in and plug and play. I mean, are think do you see that often, or are there other things out there? There's other things out there, but that's right at the top of the list. You okay. know, when you think about the criteria that it takes to sell, you know, what it really takes to sell a business, being able to transition to a new buyer is fundamental, mm-hmm. and so. The sellers, as you pointed to, so much is in their head, document everything. Because not only that it is it going to make it more sellable, it makes it a better business. Because as you're documenting these things, you may realize you're not doing it the right way, or mm. there's a better way to do it, or you're going to ask yourself yeah. some questions. So the lack of, thing, of, of processes and procedures being documented affects both sides, the operations of running the business on an ongoing basis and the ability to transition. You know, keep in mind in smaller businesses, I'm not talking about institutional buyers of PE firms of of bolt-ons, individuals mostly, or or what have you. When they buy a business and they go in there for the first day, they don't even know how to turn off the alarm. Yeah. (laughs) That's like like buying the restaurant, not knowing how to turn on the ovens. Yeah. 100% correct. Yeah. And so having that in place, and it's also from a standpoint, you know, for, for a business owner, if he or she gets hit by a Pepsi truck tomorrow, at least someone can pick up the manual and, and, and get somewhere, right? It's a starting point. So for the reasons of owning it, running it, and potentially selling it, yes, your point is, you know, it's very well taken. That, you know, there, there's that is right at the top of the list. Good books and records. Yeah. Right? Gotcha. Financial numbers, yes. numbers don't lie. Sellers, sellers lie and people lie. But numbers don't lie. So have good books and records. So many deals fall apart because of poor books and records or, or ad backs that are just insane. You know, mm-hmm. keep them clean, run your business, run your business neat and clean because it's it's all it's going to help you run your business and it's going to help you sell your business. Having um, a, a second uh, tier of management, and that's that's probably the most difficult one yeah. because a, someone starts a business or buys a smaller business, then they start to run in there. They start, you know, they become thrilled when they take start taking out some meaningful money. And the business keeps growing, and then they keep taking out more meaningful money. And the business grows further, and then they keep taking out more meaningful money. So they keep they keep bumping up their lifestyle as they have more money, as opposed to sticking at a lower amount, yeah. right? Living nicely and investing in the business. And what they generally find is they don't put a second in command into place. Gotcha. So now even a an individual buyer, an institutional buyer, P firm looks at you know because very often they're betting on the jockey, not on the horse. And now yeah. they look and say, okay. Never mind if the if the horse dies. What happens if the jockey dies, right? Yeah. Or if something happens to the, to the to the owner, who's in place? I mean, there's a there's an, a massive level of comfort when there's a terrific second in command and an institutional buyer come in, not not a strategic buyer necessarily, but an you know if a financial buyer comes into place and they know they got the owner and the owner wants to stay for X period of time, they've rolled over equity, but there's also a terrific manager in place in case yeah. something happens or they're not pleased with the owner. Yeah. Can happen. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, th- this is excellent, excellent stuff. Very, very useful. Now, uh, Richard, give me a, a quick profile. Who's your ideal client? Who is Roy Street Advisors really looking for to help? 
My number one criteria is, is someone that I like and trust. Okay. So that to me is really, really important. I need someone I want, I, I, I want to have a, an ideal client is realistic. They're motivated, but not pressured. Mm -hmm. oh, they're open they're open-minded because what we think the deal may look like it may not look like that at all i mean i'm doing this for three decades i have a pretty good i get a pretty good grasp on valuations and reality but deal terms can you know it could sometimes move around and so as a, a business owner you know i always advise him or her that we have to remain open-minded that doesn't mean taking a bad deal it's just open-minded yeah. to the deal you may think that you want to sell it right off into the sunset but in order to get the deal done you might have to stay for a year or two um yeah. you know whatever that case may be be open-minded for me it's a, it's it's a good business I don't sell distressed businesses because it's nothing but stress. That's the part of distress that resonates with me. Yeah. So I want a good business that's going to that can transition well to can transition well to a new owner as to the point that you mentioned and we talked about just before. I like business where there's a large buyer pool. So I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't want to highly specialize where there's a very limited buyer pool. Cause if you if it's not there, it's not there, right? I mean, yeah. then the deal to be never gets to the finish right. Of course, we have to have good books and records. And it's got to be priced right. Now, some of the businesses we don't price, but the seller knows from me very clearly, here's, I will give you probably within a very good uh, slim margin of error, what this enterprise value is going to be. And it's not because I'm smart, I'm just old and doing it long enough. So yeah. a pretty good idea. And I'm also very, very, very grounded related to multiples. I, you know, some of these, as someone recently, their business is making two and a half million dollars. You know, it was wonderful business. It met all the criteria that we just talked about, except one thing, because he told me, he said, for $30 million, I'm out the door. Oh, well, so, of course. So, <laughs> yeah, so, what I, so what I told him was, I said, if you're willing to go out the door for 10 to 12 and a half million, then we can do some work together. Yeah. But if not, I said, I'm going to give you a list of everybody in my business locally, and you can call them because anybody who tells you that they can sell it for that kind of money is, is you know, smoking crack. Well, yeah, absolutely. Now, in the lower middle market, um, I, I don't know how much experience you've had, but, you know, the insurance industry has come in with the larger deals with a product called reps and warranties insurance. They've since come down with something else. I'm to, to set the table real quick, Richard, good, better and different. What experience have you had with reps and warranties insurance? My experience has been terrible. Okay. Because I can't get it. So I've looked at it on a number of transactions, but I can't get anybody to return a phone call if I'm not doing a $50 million deal. And so, you know, in my, I get these inquiries all the time from LinkedIn. Someone wants to connect with me, these financial planners. And, and I always, I've always made it a point in my whole career. If anybody wants to talk with me, even if they're selling me something, whatever the case may be, I, owe them the right of my time. I'm not a big fancy guy, but I always feel no matter who it is, I'll always set up a phone call with somebody. And so I have these financial planners because they would like an end to my clients, right? For tax planning or what have you. And I, I've i asked like conservatively, and this goes over the last few years, conservatively, I've asked 25 of them if they do reps and warranty, warranty insurance or know someone who does rep and warranty insurance on my size deals. And I haven't gotten a single affirmative yet. So when you know, when we started initially speaking and got the, the parameters of the deals that you um, you do, I mean, for me, that's priceless. But I've seen it where, you know, in the smaller deals, again, in, in where I play um, a million to five million dollars of EBITDA, we have a, a contract and, and, and the, they see the contract from the from um, buy side attorneys. 
it's it's amazing how many sellers like will almost gloss over or not realize the impact of reps and warranties when they first look at the contract until their lawyer or myself says to them, God, yeah. hey, you need to pay attention to this, yeah. right? The purchase price is very straightforward. The deal terms, that's 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 binary, right? That's stuff up there. But you need to pay attention to this. This is not just the case of saying, you know, you're going to quote unquote guarantee the things that you've told them. Right. I mean, it goes way beyond that. So, you know, along with the educate, once they understand that and, and certainly affordable, I mean, if you're, if you're getting 500, you know, $5 million of coverage and costing you 75,000, you're pocketing 5 million and you know, your rear end is covered. I mean, it's, it's, it's really brilliant. I would, I would suspect that there's, you know, probably a terrific opportunity for you as well. Much lower end, right? As far as the business, a million, two, three, five million that are enterprise value because both sides of the equation plus the, the parties that are typically involved in advisors, they're clueless with this, right? So um, it, 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 I find, I, I think it's a, a you know, it sounds like a terrific product and I, and I believe it's probably a, a great opportunity. So yeah, we'll end up doing business, you and I, besides our wonderful conversation, we'll do some business together. I got one for you. I got one for you right after this call. Yeah, completely, completely appreciate this. Well, I tell you, now, Richard, what do you see going forward? I mean, what, I always ask my guests, you know, trends and everything. We're, we're getting near the end of the year, so we're already into 2023. For the smaller, uh, you know, owners and founders of smaller companies, I don't know if the big macro headwinds are going to hit them necessarily as much as the, the larger publicly traded companies. But what do you see either for your practice or for M&A in general in the coming year? Well, you know, I wish I knew exactly because then I'd probably buy lotto tickets yes, as well. Yes, we would too. However, the, the smaller market, the lower market usually lags the larger market a little yeah. bit in time, but it gets slapped right in the face worse. Mm. And the reason being is all the stakeholders, you generally have businesses that start to perform poorly during tough times. You have individuals or strategic buyers in the lower market that their businesses might be performing poorly. Uh, financing costs increase exponentially and their confidence level, especially if it's individuals acquiring a business, because the biggest thing with an individual buying a business, you know, for a few million dollars, no matter how much money they have, it's it, their confidence gets them to the finish line. Okay. Whether they believe that the business can, can transition well and continue to do well, at least, or at least do the same thing post acquisition. So once that confidence is gone, I mean, it, it's very, very difficult on the lower market. Um, I think on the when you get into a little higher, and again, my you know my deals, let's say you know uh, towards that five million dollar mark. I I think what's happening now, in some ways, and I, I I hope the carnage what everybody's the naysayers are predicting is minimal at best on it on everybody, of course. But if in fact that becomes reality, I think there's some terrific potential alongside it because you know in the deal you know the institutional investors are going to put less debt on the business mm -hmm. so more equity in the business and i think that's really really good i think the multiples are going to come down i'm not sure yeah. you know multiples are always related to deal flow and if some businesses start doing poorly deal flow is going to get even worse but it should bring down the multiples of the um, markets where i operate that have gotten crazy for no reason yeah. Okay. And I think so. I think on the higher end, middle market, higher market, I think multiples may may hold a little bit um, because you have all these you know P firms with gobs of money that has to be deployed, right? So that will keep some of the multiples, but their deal structure will change. For me personally, I love it when there's blood in the street because I think the businesses that my clients, the ones who have good businesses, when there's blood in the street, 
those businesses look even better. Yeah, they become a premium. Yeah. They, the, the light shines on them, right? Yeah. And so for me, you know, I there, there's a little bit of navigating, but, you know, I can't predict exactly what's happening. But if everything that seems to be happening, what we know is in place already with, you know, higher interest um, and some of the macro um, economic symptoms that 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 could happen, I, you know, pers- have a, a, a where I think it's going to go because I've seen it before. For me, I, I actually think there's going to be some terrific opportunities. Yeah, I, I I completely agree. I I think that that's going to happen too. And also, just time hasn't stopped, and we've got a lot of these owners and founders that aren't getting any younger. And yep. and so uh, there's going to be movement and transition that is inescapable. Uh, Correct. In the next couple of years. And the other thing to consider is, you know, you always come out of it, right? Yeah. So it's just a matter of how long it lasts. If you do your homework and, and you know, do some stress testing about past economic cycles and everything seems to, you know, and not seems to, everything repeats itself. Um, there's just, there, you, you just have to, you know, dig a little deeper and there's going to be some, I again, I, I just think there's going to be some terrific opportunities, some carnage, of course, but from where I operate, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, I, I I completely agree because we're operating in the same in the same yeah, area. I correct. just I just keep reminding myself. I heard a very wise person say, "Look, everything ends. You know, losing streaks, hard times, challenges, they always end. So do winning streaks. And so you know, you prepare for either one. And I think I think we get through it. But this is fantastic, Richard Parker from Roy Street Advisors. How can our audience members find you? Um, it's easy by email. It's RP as in Richard Parker at RoyStreet.com. Easy. Again, RP at RoyStreet.com. And I give my cell number. Anybody's happy to, um, you know, feel free. Anybody give me a call directly. It's 561-308-1650. And, yeah. And, uh, the website is RoyStreet.com. Okay. Spell out the street. ROYstreet.com. Yep. All right. Fantastic. Well, Richard Parker, it's been a pleasure. We're going to be talking again. Thanks again. I really appreciate your time and great questions. And this is a terrific conversation. I enjoyed this. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks.